lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, good evening, everyone. Rabbi Mel is back. The world is all good again. You missed me, I know, I missed you too. I have a wonderful guest this evening, Isabel Eureko Stenzel Burns. Uh, I want to read you a little bit about uh, who she is and what she does. I know that uh, every time there's a show, you get on a bio of the guest. I wonder if anybody reads them. I don't know, but I'm going to read it anyway. Isabel is a bereavement social worker in Mission Hospice in San Mateo, where she counsels children, teen and adults, and also leads writing groups for those who are grieving. Isabel has also worked with chronically ill children and families for many years at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. Isabel and her late twin sister, Annabelle, published their memoir, the Power of Two, A Twin Triumph Over Cystic Fibrosis, which inspired the creation of a documentary film of the same title. Isabel has been a longtime advocate for cystic fibrosis and organ donation awareness. Isabel has lectured around the country on topics such as living well with illness, therapeutic writing, end-of-life issues, in organ donation, including a TEDx Stanford talk in 2014. She lives with her husband, Andrew, in Redwood City, California. Isabel, welcome to Morning to Morning. Thank, thank you very much, Rabbi Glasser. It's great to be on the show. Well, it's good to have you, and I'm very impressed by your life. Mm, thank you. I mean, I think you're a pretty strong woman. <laughs> uh, as we we talked right before the show, I I am reading Isabel's book, The Power of Two, which you should all read. You should go to Kindle or Amazon or whatever you want to do, and you should buy a copy. And you, it's mesmerizing. Mm, thank you. You're welcome. I mean it. It's mesmerizing because here you get two little kids who are twins and they're sick from the day they're born. There hasn't been a day in their lives when they hadn't been sick. And Anna, her twin sister, died of cystic fibrosis. And if it was me, I would have given up. I just would have given up. I would have said, well, that's what's going to happen to me. So I'm going to give up. But Thank God Isabel did not give up, and she's active, and she's happy, and how's this, how's your cystic fibrosis these days? What's what's going on? Well, thankfully, knock on wood, I'm doing really well. Um, I actually received a lung transplant 12 years ago, and my sister had a lung transplant uh, 13 years before she died. So she actually didn't die of cystic fibrosis lung disease, but unfortunately she developed um, 
bowel cancer, which is slightly related to cystic fibrosis. But but thankfully, I'm doing really well. I'm working four days a week and um, extremely active. Uh, I'm physically fit and um, well, I take good care of myself. I do what my doctor says, and uh, so far, so good. I'm really blessed. Well, you sound great. Thank you. Um, I have lots of questions, uh-huh. many of which I will ask, many of which we're going to run out of time before I can ask. Right. But um, you remember back when you were a kid, and... You and Anna were going through this. Did you think you were going to die of cystic fibrosis? Most definitely. I think um, when you when you can't breathe, that that sensation of shortness of breath is automatically anxiety provoking. And also, when we were in the hospital as children, we actually knew other kids with CF, and one day their rooms would be empty. And so we witnessed firsthand that kids with cystic fibrosis died. Uh, We also went to a summer camp, and we would go back the following year, and and a number of kids did not come back. So from a very early age, even before the age of 10, we recognized that death happens and kids with this disease happen and uh, kids with this disease die and that 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 same sort of um, result would happen to us and so we had to prepare at a very young age for death. Um, As a lot of times maybe in textbooks and academic settings like there's discussion of kids not being fully aware of, of mortality, but I think from a personal experience standpoint, I was very aware of the fact that my life would be uh, finite. And in many ways, I think that helped me because I decided, I think I was about six years old when I said to myself, um, this, this, you know, I went to Seattle when I was six years old, and I remember saying, this is my first airplane ride, and it could be my last. So I better enjoy this trip as much as I can. And that was my philosophy from that age, to just appreciate every opportunity and experience I could, um, I could enjoy. Um, and that, that philosophy has helped me throughout my life. In that sense, um, being sick was a gift. Yes, yes. Yeah, it took some work. I mean, I would, I would never say that, that like my psychology went from death awareness to appreciation of life in a straight line. I would say it took um, years of uh, anxiety and fear and uncertainty and loneliness and um, despair even until I kind of came to the full awareness that, okay, this makes up my whole life experience and um, I'm just going to live it. (laughs) It sounds to me by reading the part of the book that I've gone through already, and I will finish it, I promise. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'll write a testimonial, I promise. Mm -hmm. Um, You didn't grow up in a happy family. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like your parents were cuddly and uh, that kind of parents. And so mm-hmm. that makes it doubly hard for you, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the goals of, of writing was to document what it was like to live with cystic fibrosis, but I also wanted to show that um, a family is a family. And so my parents came together. My dad is from Germany. My mother is from Japan. They came from very different cultures, and they never even knew what cystic fibrosis was. And so they were forced to kind of cope with not only raising children in a foreign country, but suddenly being thrown into the medical world and having to navigate um, the medical community and even the medical language. Um, so it was very difficult for them. At, at, at my current age, I reflect back and say, okay, they did the very best they could. Um, they, uh, they, they had the resources that they were brought up with and they used them to the best of their abilities. Um, I would never ever say that they, like, were, you know, bad parents, that, that they actually struggled. And, um, as anyone who's a parent can imagine, having children and, and not knowing whether they would live to age 10 or to graduate high school, how do you love a child, um, when you know that you're going to lose them young. So it was a very delicate balance of, of, um, of raising children. And also keep in mind with cystic fibrosis, we were required to do uh, respiratory therapy treatments, and some of those treatments lasted three to four to five hours a day. So you've got these kids that you, you know you may lose, but you also have a lot of work um, imposed on you to take care of them. So, again, I think I wanted to convey in the book and the truth that raising children with chronic illness affects everybody, and it's a family affair, and it's not easy. I agree with you. On this show of mine, which has been going since December, it's hard to believe it's October already, um, I talk about loss as a family affair. Mm-hmm. It's not just—it's not just one person who dies. It's the whole family structure that's rent asunder and loses its shape because now you got to deal with a different constitution of of what the family looks like and yep. and how you treat people and there's and somebody's not at the dinner table every night anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and how do you get through that, and how do you go on, and how do you, well, I guess you do, because you do. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, it just, and, and I remember reading this morning how uh, nobody was happy when they found out that you were going to be twins. Mm-hmm. It was not particularly good news. Right. Because they knew it, especially mom, of course, knew it was going to be work, and she, you know, she she didn't know how much work she was going to have to do. And then your brother um, was a typical brother most of the time. Yes. When you were growing up, he wasn't, uh, you know, happy, clappy, lovey-dovey mm-hmm. like I liked him to be, but... On the other hand, he was real. Yep. Yep. My brother um, is 18 months older than us, and uh, you can imagine as a toddler when all of a sudden he has baby twin sisters and all the 
passer buyers are giving us attention and saying how cute we were, that took attention away from him. And then on top of that, we had all these medical treatments, and that kind of consumed my parents. Um, so he, we wanted to convey in the story the truth that siblings do struggle and suffer when there's a chronically ill child in the family. And so he um, reacted. <laughs> he reacted like a typical brother trying to tease us and get the attention he needed. Um, ultimately, over the course of our lives, we have learned to reconcile and love each other and support each other and respect our differences, um, but it, it wasn't easy for him growing up. You talked about getting both of you getting lung transplants. Mm-hmm. Do you know where those lungs came from? Do you know the donors? Um, so with the process of lung transplantation, like both Anna and I had to reach a level of lung damage to qualify for the transplant. And unfortunately, cystic fibrosis is progressive um, despite all the treatments and progress. Uh, sometimes the disease still takes over, and both Anna and I reached a very limited lung capacity. Hers was like 20%, and mine was like 30% when, I was, when we were both put on the list. And um, when we're put on the list, we are matched by our, our donor size only by height, and then, of course, by blood type, and then we wait, and we wait and wait until, sadly, there's a tragedy that happens to somebody, and they say yes to organ donation. Um, so my sister, when, we were, when she had her surgery, after her surgery, she was basically told, your donor is a male in his um, 20s, and that's all we're told, just that. And... Uh, now you can Google, like, when, where has there been a death? And ultimately what happened was about a year after her transplant, she wrote a letter to Donor Network West. That's the California Organ Procurement Organization. And it was a thank you letter. So they take out all of her personal information that would identify her, but just, um, you know, send that letter to the family uh, to express their gratitude. And I did the same thing with my donor family um, two years after my transplant. And we wait. And finally, over time, our both donor families did, in fact, write a letter back. And, of course, they couldn't tell us where they live or their last name, but they could tell us what our donors' names were. My sister's donor was James, and he died at age 29 from an aneurysm. Um, and my donor was Xavier Cervantes, and he died uh, tragically in a car accident um, just shy of high school graduation, uh, just uh, January before he graduated. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to imagine that we are alive because somebody else died, um, but at the same time I know that um, these young men wanted to give the gift of life. They wanted to help people. In fact, my donor told his mom two months before his car accident, if anything happens to me, I want to I help someone. I want to donate my organs. And um, it's such a heroic act for a young man to think of that. Um, sure. When this accident happened, they, they knew exactly what to do. Well, thank God you got him. I mean, yes. thank yes. you. No. Know. You, you sound great. I mean, you don't sound <laughs> Thank you. big problems. You don't. Uh, I'm sure your life is not 
as you would have liked it to be even now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you sure sound a whole lot better than um, than you did before I met right. you. Yeah, well, so, I mean, keep in mind that transplantation is not a fix. It's not a cure. It doesn't mean I'm going to live to a ripe old age, but it certainly extends my life, and my quality of life is exceptional. So I'm I'm forever grateful, and whatever minor medical um, complications there are, I'm I'm totally willing to cope with them because this is the price I pay. I have I have diabetes. I have little issues here and there, but. It's the price I pay to just be alive. You have looked at death in the face and have survived. Yes. You can't beat that. Right. So um, we're going to take a break for a, a, a few minutes, a few seconds, and we'll be right back. And I want to ask you to talk about some theology, what you believe theologically about life and death and who shall live and who shall die, and I'll tell you why I'll do that after the break. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. This is Rabbi Glazer, Rabbi Mel Glazer speaking. Uh, we're back. I'm back with my friend Isabel Stenzel Burns. Um, Isabel, you got a long name. I don't know what you're doing with your checkbook. <laughs> it's long. I'm you trying to be checks. a modern woman who has two last names, my own and my husband's. 
Right, but there's no there's no dash between Stenzel and Burns. Right. So you are an independent woman. Well, that's good. So we've been talking about her childhood, and she and her twin sister uh, Anna had, and she still has cystic fibrosis. I mean, you never get rid of it, right? No, no, I don't. It's genetic it's in every cell. It's a friend, yeah. It walks with you through life. Yes. I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. One of the things that I like to say is that we only learn anything about ourselves by how we deal with the losses in our lives. And I give some examples like birthday parties, which are nice, you get presents, but you don't learn anything about your life. You're, you know, it's nothing really in the great scheme of things. I mean, even weddings are nice, they're beautiful, and you hug your husband, and you go party, and you go on a vacation, and whatever, and you know, and you're happy. I'm not sure you learn real tough stuff about your life like you have. Mm-hmm. So, my one of my questions to you, Isabel, is what what have you learned about yourself? What what? I mean, we've talked about uh, Anna's death and your illness. Was in, were in a sense a gift because you learned about life. So talk a little bit, if you would, about what you've learned about yourself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's a great question. I could spend hours talking about this, but I think um, first I want to just say that my self-awareness happened over many years, um, and I think that's the case for all of us. Like, it took time to go through a process of um, taking a, a life hardship like illness and um, looking at it in a different light. At first, there was anger and resentment and feelings of being, un, you know, that life was unfair and um, feeling different and isolated and insecure and over time as life progressed I realized some of these feelings were making were adding to my suffering and making my life harder and so I decided to give them up so if they if they weren't working for me why am I holding on to them so like feeling that life is unfair well I I got you know, a degree in social work, so I became a social worker, and there's no better way to gain perspective than witnessing all of the other suffering that's out there and to learn that maybe in my life my illness is one source of struggle, but the rest of my life is okay. In fact, the rest of my life is blessed. Um, And so also um, I learned that uh, I could change my attitude. I could give up. the negative, difficult emotions after I had acknowledged them because I am no Pollyanna. I totally believe in the value of um, expressing and acknowledging and being aware of negative feelings first before I can let them go. Um, I learned that I'm a very strong person and that, um, again, I feel that I these this disease and these Challenges have happened for a greater reason. Um, my illness taught me to focus on other people, ironically. So 
it's, again, part of that perspective building is that I became a volunteer for the cystic fibrosis community. And what it did was it helped me feel needed and helped me feel like I had something to offer, even though I was a disabled, sick woman. Um, normally, I felt useless, but I could contribute in ways to this specific community um, because of my, you know, my, my life experience. Um, and I think I, I learned gradually that I could choose to, you know, maintain an attitude of gratitude to feel that even though my health was poor most of my life, that I'm so incredibly grateful for the experiences I've had in the cystic fibrosis community or in the transplant communities. I'm grateful for the wisdom that this illness has given me to allow me to be a better ambassador to people who are grieving um, and that I can, you know, um, think of or sort of maintain an attitude of life that is bigger than just my body. I think that's the most important thing I learned. I learned that I, Issa Stenzel Burns, Isabel Stenzel Burns, is not a body. <laughs> I am a spirit, a soul, More. a personality, and my body will age and get sick and die, and that I believe that I am a force greater than this vessel. And what do you believe happens to your soul after you die? Or, well, that's another yeah. way of asking, what, what happened to Anna's soul after she died? Right, that's a, a great question, and actually I don't even know if I have an answer for that, but I can share that when I um, had my transplant, I actually was in respiratory failure. So over the course of days, I just could not breathe anymore. My lungs were failing. I was on 10 liters of oxygen, which is a very high amount. I couldn't even brush my teeth because I couldn't breathe. And gradually I faded. I, everything became dark. Um, but then I had this very strong spiritual epiphany at a time where my oxygen saturation was extremely low and uh, I basically coded, um, so I stopped breathing. Um, but so what happened to me was I had this sensation of ecstasy, this pure um, extraordinary joy, like kind of like I was on top of a roller coaster about to go down and that exhilarating feeling came to me. And by the way, I was not on morphine or fentanyl or anything like that to give me that feeling. It was purely natural. And um, I called out the names of people who had died. Um, I don't remember seeing them, but my sister and husband you know, witnessed me calling out names, and I started running in bed. Mind you, I was almost dead. I, I was purple, and uh, I started running in bed and screaming, this is amazing, this is wonderful, how beautiful, because of the sensation of, of ecstasy. So when I had that experience, when I ultimately I was put on a ventilator, I was given sedatives, and I waited on the transplant list. And a miracle happened, and 23 hours later, my family, who was expecting me to die, um, received the most powerful five words anyone could ever receive in this circumstance, which was, we have lungs for Isabel. So there was a donor found, and that was why I'm still here. 
Um, but when I woke up, I basically felt um, disappointed <laughs> that I had to live like that again. I immediately thought, oh, man, I have to go through that process again one day because dying was hard. The actual dying part was very hard. But it made me suddenly realize I don't need to fear death because there is something extraordinarily mysterious on the other side and that our bodies, maybe it's just a physiologic adaptation, but something happens that makes this crossing over um, not only a negative experience. Um, so that makes me think there is a spiritual world. There is some sort of soul world that I will eventually get to, but it wasn't my time. And I'd like to believe that when my sister crossed over three years ago, that she went through uh, an experience like that. I don't know. Um, I'd like to believe that I receive messages from her. And I'm a firm believer as a bereavement counselor that we can believe in anything that gives us comfort. It doesn't have to be true. It doesn't need to be proven. It needs to give us comfort. And so if I see a butterfly and my sister loved butterflies, I'm going to believe that she's saying hi. Um, Have I heard her voice? Have I seen a vision of her? No, not in the material way that we relate to the world. Um, But But you can close your eyes anytime you want. Yes, yeah. And And psychologically, she's very present. She's very much alive in my mind and in... Of course, in my the, her, the love that I feel for her is very palpable. So. You mentioned um, comfort. Um, I have loved to teach that at the end of life, since nobody knows what really happens, mm-hmm. some people believe in a physical heaven and hell. So I'm not one of them, but but some people like me and most people I know believe that you live on in the legacy that you leave to others, the gifts and the teachings and the role modeling and the examples that mm-hmm. your life people remember. But I always say to people that if you tell me before you die, and I do a lot of counseling, I do a lot of work with hospitals, not a lot, but not certainly as much as you do, but I am called uh, to hospices I'd say once every other week, you know, and I deal with with people who are going to die, and I pray with them, and we have final prayers in the Jewish tradition, just as the Catholics do, and I ask them, what do they think, where are they going, what do they think is going to happen to their soul after they die? Mm -hmm. And some people say, I'm going to be with my mama and daddy again. Mm Mm-hmm. And I start talking about that. Because what do I know? I don't know what's right. (laughs) Nobody's come back and nobody's tweeted from anywhere. (laughs) Hey. We'll find out one day. It's right here. It's wonderful. There's no hurricanes. You don't have to worry. There's no elections to get all excited about. It's it's beautiful. If they want to believe that they're going to go to that kind of place... Well, that's fine with me, and I will support them. Whether I believe it or not really doesn't matter. Right. And I'm sure you're in the same situation as you work 
in your hospice, it's it's our job is is to comfort them, not to tell them they're right or they're wrong because we don't know. Right, right. I'm I'm I keep saying I'm not afraid of of dying because I know I always like to tell a joke to make it easier. And I'd say to my people, you know, when I die, there are going to be 2,000 people at my cemetery at my service making sure that it's me there. <laughs> because, you know, when you're a rabbi, you have to say things that not everybody wants to listen to. When you're in a clergy or, or counselor or any of that. So uh, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm content that if it happened tomorrow morning, I've done enough good in my life that if you have to earn heaven, I've earned it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's all that I really care about. I mean, yeah. you know, like Mother Teresa, Saint Mother Teresa, excuse me, who Pope Paul says we'll never call her saint, we'll just always call her Mother Teresa because that's who she was. She was our mother. Mother Teresa's in heaven, Adolf Hitler is in hell. Because mm-hmm. when we think about them, we, that's where we put them. And we don't have to know for sure, and I don't need a physical place. And I've lived in Florida, so I don't have to go to hell. I know how hot it gets. <laughs> it's okay. You know, I'm working on air conditioning, but it's going to take a long time to do that. So I'm with you. Yeah. I believe job is to comfort people and make them feel comforted. I can well imagine that since you have gone through what you have gone through, when you walk into a hospice or hospital room, people immediately feel better just seeing you. Well, I don't know about that. I have to uh, just, you know, remind the listeners and you that I'm a human being and so I haven't gone through anything unique because at some point whether we want to hear this or not we're all going to have to face some sort of physical um, inconvenience which could be as minor as needing eyeglasses to as major as having a serious life-threatening illness and we're all going to have to adapt um, to when our bodies don't work. And so my philosophy over my lifespan is that my mind, my attitude towards that will dictate how much suffering I actually have. And so my body might do what it does, but I can, you know, resist and be upset and, you know, be angry about it, or I can live with it and adapt and uh, grieve um, and move forward. And I think... Many people learn these lessons in their 70s and 80s and 90s, and unfortunately I learned them in my teens and 20s and 30s. And so I just want to emphasize that that it's not really necessary to sort of praise me for living an extraordinary life. I've just lived with a body, (laughs) and we all do that. (laughs) Right, But, but, but I'm saying that because of what you have lived with yeah, and survived, you're a whole lot more compassionate. Mm-hmm. And that compassion yes. comes out. Right. You don't have to do a thing. You yeah. are well, naturally compassionate. Yeah, I think which, one of the, my, philosoph- my philosophies of life, my universal truths, 
is that I am not just me. I am a product of hundreds of doctors who did their best to keep me alive, of nurses who took care of me and gave me medicines, of teachers who accommodated my special needs, of counselors who helped me, you know, um, maintain a good attitude, of, uh, of my family who, you know, paid for my housing and supported me during all of the roller coaster ride. So I think that's the case for all of us. We're a product of people who have supported us in our lives. And so um, I guess my point there is that that's why I choose a life of gratitude, to have like that foundation as my life philosophy, to just be grateful to still be here and be grateful for um, all the support I've given, I've received. And um, that's why I think when you say compassion comes up after living a life of struggle, I think it's, um, it's true. I think there, there's a sense of meaning that if I've received all of this support, and most notably, I can't forget, um, I'm alive because of my lung donor, because of a young man who wanted to save people, um, then I, I want to give back and make meaning out of the time that I've had. And that's why I've chosen social work and chosen to volunteer in a number of things um, so that my energy is well spent. I had some major heart surgery a year ago. I had an atrial valve replaced, and it was not pretty. And I was away from the job for, I don't know, six months or so, and I had some pretty nasty nurses come in my room. You know, I wasn't real happy to see them. They were just nasty. They weren't kind. They weren't compassionate. I didn't like them. Of course, they made me do things I didn't want to do, like walk. And who wanted to walk after something like that? But that's what I mean, that because of your your own personal feelings and experiences, they you pay them forward in a sense. We got to take a break and we will... We will be back. We have much more to talk about. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rabbi Mel, and this is Isabel Stenzel-Burns, and we're coming right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. 
Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, everyone. Rabbi Mel back with my friend uh, Isabel Burns, Isabel Stenzel Burns. And she is a survivor of cystic fibrosis. Her twin sister, Anna, died several years ago of it, and we've been talking about that experience and what that brings to her now. She's a bereavement counselor, and I just got through beating her up a little bit by saying that that because of what she's lived with, she's got compassion. And if I'm lying in a hospital bed or a hospice bed and I see her, her compassion is going to glow and it's going to mean something to me as opposed to those nasty old nurses that I had when I was in surgery for my heart last year and I didn't want to see them. I pretended to be asleep. <laughs> and then they took my arm and took blood. That's what they're supposed to do. I was just talking about how her life has given her compassion to help others um, because of what she's lived with. And I said that I could well imagine that when she walked into a room where somebody was dying, that person would feel more comfort because of what Isabel gives off from her own life experience. She's modest and humble, so she says, no, I'm wrong. But I don't care what you say. It's my show and I get to say what I want. The reason I'm, one of the reasons I'm talking about it, I mean it, by the way. One of the, because I don't know if I can, I mean, I've, I've been doing death for 45 years. Okay. I got a doctorate, I got books, I got a radio show. I mean, I talk about it all the time. I teach about it. I'm a death guy. My daddy died two days after I turned 12 years old. That was the day I became a grief therapist. You know what I mean. So um, it's because the reason I'm talking about it is because we Jews have just finished the New Year's festival, Rosh Hashanah. And these 10 days, next 10 days, lead us to the holiest day on the Jewish calendar called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement or as I like to say, the day of that one mint, where we ask God to forgive us for the sins that we have committed against God and against each other. And I've talked about that a lot in terms of saying goodbye to people who are dying and making peace and laying them gently down and, and, and. And one of the most important prayers that we say on Yom Kippur, um, it's it's um, a poem that was written hundreds of years ago, and it mentions who shall live and who shall die, who shall be old and who shall be young, 
who shall be born and who shall suffer, et cetera, et cetera. And I always tell my congregation, when we get to the who shall live and who shall die part, that every year, and I've been here 10 years in Colorado Springs, I look at my congregation and I see empty seats. And I know why they're empty, because I buried most of them. And so it's true. You know, people are going to live and people are going to die. Now, some of us take that theologically, that God is in charge of our lives. And whatever happens, happens because God wants it to happen. I don't necessarily believe that. But on the other hand, here I am in Colorado Springs and I'm an East Coast guy born in Atlanta and spend most of my time in pulpits on the East Coast, and here I am in the middle of nowhere, you know, in the Midwest, well, maybe that was God's decision. Who knows? I mean, maybe you married the guy you married because you were supposed to marry him. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think about that business? Well, I I think that's a a source of, like, some controversy because I don't think God is the type of God who would say, okay, you are going to be born with an illness like cystic fibrosis that, that you know, that gives you unquantifiable pain and suffering. I, I don't think that's the kind of God we have, but that's my opinion. I do believe that God is someone I can call on for support and comfort and guidance and wisdom and, and faith. Um, so that's kind of like um, Rabbi, Rabbi Harold Kushner, right? The why bad things happen to good people. That God helps us find meaning in struggle and that we can um, find comfort in, in his guidance, his or her guidance. Um, so I personally um, lean on God to help me figure out what to do next. Um, to surrender, I mean, I consider God to be surrender, <laughs> by rather than saying, I'm going to write up the story of my life, and if it doesn't happen, I will be angry and disappointed and despairing. Rather, I'd rather, I've learned this the hard way, I can't write up the story of my life because it's going to take twists and turns in ways that I don't expect it to. I expected to be dead by the time I was 18, but here I am, 44 years old, almost 45. So I think I've learned to surrender to a plan or to a reason, a purpose, a meaning of why I'm still alive. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's my philosophy. I will. I agree, and so does Harold Kushner. and. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a story that, that I mentioned on this show before. A long time ago, I was at a rabbinical convention with him. He's a conservative rabbi, as am I. We were ordained at the same seminary in New York, the Jewish Theological Seminary. And we were at a rabbinic conference, a convention, and he was our guest speaker. And he is just, he's unbelievable. He's like a prophet for our times. Right, right, exactly. And so... Uh, he said that a lot of people, when they talk to him about his book, think incorrectly that the name of the book is Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. A lot of people do. He said that's not the name of the book. The name of the book is When Bad Things Happen. It's a book that tells you 
what to do when bad things happen to good people. Mm. So he said, if I wrote a book and called it Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, it would be only three words long because they do. (laughs) He said, and you know, I've published a lot of books, but I can't get me no publisher to publish a three-word book. It's not going to be. And I don't believe it, he said. He, he agrees with you and me and, and a lot of other people that we know that, matter of fact, we have this, this sort of Kabbalistic tradition that when God created the world, his glory filled the universe. And there was truly no place, no physical place for humanity to act, for us to act. So God pulled back. It's like he stepped back to give us room so that we could have freedom of choice to do what we wanted and needed to do. Mm. He left the world unfinished. That's why he created us, because we are God's partners in finishing the world. And what happens, happens. And you have free will, and if you want to end up being a Hitler, you can be a Hitler. And if you want to be a, end up being Mother Teresa, you can be Mother Teresa. And nobody can, can make that different except for you. The only person that can change your life is you. Mm-hmm. You know very well. Right. And I know very well. And everybody else knows very well because there's no person on this earth that has not suffered something. Nobody. Yes. Exactly. So, so God is a force in the universe that uh, gives us the courage to, as you say, deal with the cards that we are handed and to make them work. I believe God's the first artist, that he took raw materials. This is theology. We're not going to get into it now. It'll take forever. God had raw materials, the water and the wind and, the, and, and all the other stuff, and God took them and blended them made them into the world. And our job is to live in God's image, that is to be artists and take the raw materials that we were given and build ourselves a masterpiece. We I are think I would, I would add to that, excuse me for interrupting, um, to add to that by saying God gave us life, and so it, we are charged to live the best possible life we can live with the circumstances we're given. And Correct. that's where our choice comes in, that even if we might be sick or we might be poor or we might have, um, right. you know, discrimination or whatever it is, um, that we can still make choices to enjoy and make meaning out of our lives. And, and, and I think I see that in people who are grieving, who've endured a, an uncountable loss, um, that they... That's why we say grief is often transformative. They choose to do something with what has happened and, and make something meaningful. And, and we know about that, you and I, because mm-hmm. we lived it. We're going to have to go in uh, two minutes, but before we go, I want to thank you, Isabel, for being with me tonight. Um, you, you're wonderful. You're strong. You're courageous. I don't want to put you on a pedestal because I don't want to embarrass you. Our sages, <laughs> Good. 
not to embarrass somebody in their presence, but I don't care. Our sages are dead. You're not. So I'm the sage. And I, I thank will. You. Yeah. So, I've been wonderful. And I'm sure that you've helped a lot of people. If thank you want to get in touch, if my people want to get in touch with you, Isabel, can I give them uh, your website? Your, yes, your, my, yeah. my website is a great way to um, not only see the film uh, that, that I was part of called The Power of Two, um, mm-hmm. but also to gain access to our book, The Power of Two, and get to know my sister and who we were together as a pair. Uh, the point of our writing our book was to document our story and share with the world how strong a love of twins can be. Um, so the power of two do- the power of two movie dot com is our website the power uh, of two movie dot com. You heard her, people. Go there. You have to go there. If you want to contact me, I'm at Rabbi Mel at griefok.com, and I'll make the same deal I made last week. If you want to make a comment on um, Rabbi Mel at griefok.com. Tell me why you like the show, why you didn't like the show. Give me a suggestion of a topic that you would like to talk about, and I will send you a free copy of my book, A GPS for Grief and Healing. Next week, I'm going to talk about the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur, and I'm going to call it a rehearsal for death. So be there. I'm looking forward to your being there. We'll be together next week. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you all for listening. And bye-bye. Good night. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week. 